Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome back to Theology Unplugged. It's been great having you join us on Saturdays at 1 p.m. And I'm here around the Theology Unplugged table with Sam Storms, J.J. Side, and myself, Tim Kimberly. And we are walking through a series about tough passages or tough topics in the Bible. And I think we got a doozy today. Are you guys nervous? Yeah, very, I'm very, very I'm waiting nervous. for someone to explain this passage to okay, me. Okay, okay. So the passage we're going to look into. So JJ, I will explain it to you today. Okay. Oh, good. So just sit back and enjoy the show of me explaining the Bible. No, I'm kidding. Because what we do here on Theology Unplugged is we just talk about as people who have devoted their lives to studying the Bible, we just enjoy talking about. Uh, sometimes passages that are very clear. It's not like we're gluttons for punishment, and we always have to be in here. Uh, but one thing we talked about is a lot of times these tough passages in the Bible, these tough topics, they really lead us to pause and to really look deeply and to say, what is God communicating here? And so we are looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And I'll go ahead and read them, and then Sam, you can tell us what everything means, okay? Uh, well, I don't okay, know. Okay, yeah, that's I, fine. Yeah, Perfect. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, knowing the passage that is coming, I'm, I'm going to defer to my younger colleague on okay. the right. Here. Okay, so verse 1 starts by saying, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to his very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so you might be listening, driving around town, listening on the radio and thinking, that doesn't sound like that bad of a passage. Like we're supposed to respect those in authority. I get it. But where this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, fellas, but where this is weird to me is it makes me feel like I need to move back to England and I need to go back to uh, honoring the queen because it makes me think that maybe the entire United States experiment and our entire country is in violation of Romans chapter 13 because we should have never overthrown the authority over us. And even maybe when I vote, God thinks that I'm sinning and his wrath is going to be heavy on me when I'm voting because I'm continuing to 
turn the knife in the back of our queen. That's, it, that's it, right. It doesn't do you seem think? like, when you read the passage, it doesn't seem like it really gives you an off-ramp for resisting unjust oppressors, right? Yeah. Uh, for justifying Bonhoeffer participating in putting a suitcase bomb next to the table where Hitler was standing. You know, that's where right. where that's is right. there room for that in this passage? I'd like to throw in one thing before we roll up our sleeves and make a big mess. <laughs> you know, when, when you sort of listen to ethicists, that's okay. a hard word to say, not people from Ephesus, but ethicists, <laughs> people who discuss ethics, yeah. they'll say that we tend to have a, uh, a way of going about these things that we think of the absolute worst case scenario immediately okay. and try to solve that one, right? So you did a, a small degree of that, and that's not wrong, but it's good for us to remember that that is a way of going about it. In other words, many of our listeners who are reading this are not living uh, under an unjust government where their uh, religious liberties have been completely taken away, right? Um, yeah, they're not right. living in Hitler-era Germany when they read this. So for them to go there is, in a sense, to beg the question. You know, most people listening to this podcast are living in a relatively functional civil society where it may not be perfect, but the governing authorities probably don't resemble Hitler. Well, so but, okay. that's, that's one approach to take to say, let's be realists about that. And then in due course, we can talk about worst case scenarios, exceptions. But but when we build our ethics around exceptions, it's like we hurry past the passage and forget that for most people, there's a common sense application. Okay, here's my, my pushback to you, JJ, though, is that when Paul wrote this, though, he was writing it not to an exception where like one day Hitler will come up. He's writing it to crazy Roman emperors and writing it in a land where he knows, well, God knows as a dual author of scripture, God knows that Nero is right on the horizon. Nero is about ready to light Christians, uh, literally light their bodies on fire to, to Nero a, is a, like a, a Hitler. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. or you could say Hitler was like, like a little a brother yeah. to Nero potentially. Right. And so would you, would we not say that maybe we should always assume the worst case scenario as we're reading this passage? Well, that's a good question. In fact, it might help um, our listeners for us to put this in a little bit of a chronological framework, because I've heard many people, uh, when Romans 13 is brought up, they say, ah, that uh, obviously means that there is never any justification or warrant for resisting um, governmental authorities, even the most wicked and perverted, because Nero was ruling uh, mm -hmm. at the time that Paul wrote Romans, and in fact, ruling over the church to which this letter was addressed. However, it's important to remember that Nero had not yet displayed his wickedness uh, when Romans was written. Uh, Romans probably written in the mid-50s um, of the first century. Nero didn't uh, take on his more perverse uh, characteristics and begin to uh, persecute believers until the early 60s. Because in the first few years of his reign, he was actually a very effective ruler, mm -hmm. and he mm -hmm. did not show signs of the insanity that came along later. So just for anybody who's listening who's saying, hey, he's writing this to the people who are living under the cruel Nero. Well, no, he's not. He's writing it to the people under Nero, but he wasn't cruel yet. Do you think he would have written it differently? Now, this gets into the ah. Holy Spirit guiding him, but do you think he would have written it differently if he wrote it 15 years later? Oh, my. Well, <laughs> We're unplugged. Welcome well, to Theology Unplugged. The problem is 15 years later, Paul was dead. Yeah, well, Nero had <laughs> beheaded him. <laughs> Let's so, say the day yeah. before Nero beheads him. Yeah, I don't think Paul was saying, please come separate my head from my body. You know, I would love you to do that. You know, what's interesting is look at verse 3. Uh, Sam just said it. He was a ruler. He was functioning as a ruler at the time when Paul was writing this. 
Listen to how Paul describes what a ruler is. He actually gives us a fence for, for what we're supposed to think of. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Mm-hmm. If you do what is good, you will receive his approval. Well, that couldn't have been said of Hitler. That couldn't have been said of Nero in, in his latter sort of degeneration. So that's pretty interesting. He, he's giving us a definition here of, of what a ruler is and what an mm-hmm. authority is. It's somebody who, if you do good, you'll receive his approval. It's somebody who's not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So it sounds like you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that we are obligated under God to abide by the regulations and the laws of the land so long as those in governmental power, those who carry that authority, fulfill the role for which God has established human government. Notice he said God has established all authority, and he, he says that Uh, You just read it, that rulers are designed to reward good behavior and to punish bad. What if the ruler reverses that? What if they reward bad behavior and punish good? Which obviously has been the case many times. It's in many places around the world today. You have uh, governments that have inverted um, the ordained role that God has given to them. And in fact, they are... Well, think of Saddam Hussein uh, before he was toppled in Iraq. Um, what he was doing was obviously uh, the very antithesis of what God said authorities and governmental rulers are supposed to do. So are we then kind of slipping in here a qualification? It's not in the text. I mean, Paul doesn't have a little parenthesis. Oh, <clears throat> but this only applies when the governmental authorities are actually fulfilling their God-ordained role, mm-hmm. when they vacate that. Um, and here are the criteria by which you can determine whether or not they have, then you are free to rebel and engage in disobedience and throw off the yoke of tyranny, close parenthesis. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that parenthetical uh, explanation. We have just created it. And the question is, are we justified in doing so? Does the rest of the Bible, not just Romans 13, but the rest of Scripture give us good grounds for perhaps, at least in our minds, inserting that parenthetical qualification. And I personally don't think it does. I mean, I I look at Scripture, look at uh, the life of Daniel, for instance. You know, here we have Daniel that's just a good uh, official. He's a good, hardworking governmental official through very unrighteous leaders that he's serving under. And, and, but he's loving God as an individual, and, uh, and hopefully his decisions are honoring to God. Uh, But, you know, I'm nervous if we say Daniel should have being the second most powerful person of the land and being among uh, very ungodly people, he should have used his power and influence to overthrow that institution and that government. Good. Let me push. Let me push back on you. Okay. So verse two says, See, "Whoever." Man, that was JJ. Was like, "You just threw me a softball, right. brother. I'm hitting a home run." Hey, I only know how to ask this question, not how to answer it. Okay. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, verse two, resists what God has appointed. So when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up and said. I was we going will to not refer bow. to that myself. <laughs> we yeah. will not bow, O king. Were they resisting the authority and therefore resisting what God had appointed? So, or were they so obeying this is, God? This is why this is a difficult passage, yeah. right? And why it continues 2,000 years later is when are you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And when are you Daniel? Yeah. And when are you Daniel? Where now Daniel had his own a little pushback when he when he only ate vegetables. That was him pushing back a little bit. Uh, but when when do you basically say, "Kill me right now"? I'm not budging. Or yeah, I'll be the ne- number two most powerful person in ISIS, 
as a Christian? Well, like, you maybe know, how, there's how a clue. Do you do those two maybe things? there's a clue here in verse seven, further down the passage. Uh, he says again, again, fencing this position. This person that I'm describing to you, reader, is a servant of God. How? Well, he's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Well, what happens when he starts carrying out his wrath on the well doer? And then down in verse seven, he says, "So therefore, pay all what is owed to them." Taxes mm-hmm. to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. This is interesting. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's pretty interesting. So I wonder if in verse 7 he's given us a clue. Mm-hmm. Can a ruler like Nero, when he descended into a san- insanity and he's driving his chariot around in his garden that's lit with human torches mm-hmm. of martyred believers burning, is he no longer owed respect, no longer owed honor? Yeah. Well, and I think of Haman and Mordecai, too, how Mordecai is refusing to bow down to Haman. Uh, but then you have Esther that is, uh, you know, a lot of times very complacent, you know, with, with the things that are going on around her as well. I mean, just the process of her becoming the queen was probably not a God-honoring process. But, you know, God still used that. So what if there's something kinda, here? What if there's something here, too, uh, you know, uh, that's pushing against the Gnosticism? Most readers and listeners may not uh, appreciate this because they take for granted that government isn't inherently evil. But what if we didn't have this passage in the Bible and anarchists came along and said government is inherently evil. It's impossible for it to ever function in a way that's compatible with God's mission on earth. You know, what answer would you have for them if you didn't have Romans 13 saying, no, government's not inherently evil. And the default mode of a Christian in society is to honor the civil authorities, not to be an agitator who seeks to bring in anarchy. Yeah, and that's the direction I'm going to, I think, is that we should always, always, always err on the side of fulfilling Romans 13 completely to a T. When Bonhoeffer decided to participate in that plot, he went through great anguish of soul. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a light decision. It wasn't a flippant decision. Yeah. Let's bring in another passage. Uh, The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, very similar text. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or, or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice he's almost mm. picking up exactly on Paul's language. Mm. Almost think that they had swapped notes here. <laughs> and then he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then he says at the end of this, uh, in down in verse 17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Mm. So we have two texts that are pretty explicit. Now let's... Let's, we've already alluded to them. Let's bring in a couple of other passages that might kind of mess things up. Let's bring in the example of the midwives in Exodus chapter 2, yeah. who had a very clear authoritative word from Pharaoh, who was the ruler. He was an authority that had been established by God, um, and yet they willfully resisted. And as I read the text, they actually deceived him mm-hmm. as to um, um, the... Uh, the birth of these children. Um, then uh, we have the one that JJ just mentioned, Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, by the way, I'm, I'm, there's a theme here that connects all these, so I just want us to think about this. Is it God? Is God the theme? Uh, close. Or is there another theme? <laughs> uh, the, 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 the golden thread here. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ordered by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship an image, an idol, other than God. Then we have Acts chapter 4, where the disciples, after having preached, are arrested. They're beaten. They're told that they should never speak again 
uh, in the name of Christ. And they say in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so here, here's what I'm getting at. In the case of the midwives, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the case of uh, the disciples, the apostles in Acts chapter 4, they all had been ordered by the governing authorities to violate something that God had explicitly said they shouldn't do. Now, in Daniel's case, I don't know that that, that that was the situation. We don't have any evidence that Daniel was told to implement Nebuchadnezzar's will in the punishment of the good and the rewarding of the bad. But in these three cases, they all resist the authorities because they view God as a higher authority. And they say, look, we will abide by your rules. We will bow to your authority. But if you command that we cross a line and disobey something explicitly told us by God, we must obey him rather than you. Now, Paul was aware of those cases. He knew about the midwives in, in, during the time of the Exodus. He knew about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He obviously knew about the, the apostles in Acts 4. He's writing this with those situations well in mind. So was there some sort of qualification, some sort of parenthetical insertion in his mind, even though he didn't record it in Scripture? Would Paul have said to Peter and the others, well, of course, uh, you've got to understand, I know you were justified in disobeying the authorities and continuing to preach in the name of Jesus because God's commanded us to do that. Everybody knows that. I'm not addressing those exceptions. I'm addressing a general rule, not all possible qualifications or uh, nuanced situations that might justify um, disobedience to the governing authorities. Yeah. Well, That's, and think about this. If you lay the French Revolution and the American Revolution side by side, here are two overthrows of a standing government and institution of a new order. And, and I'm not going to do some revisionist history where we say that every founding father was a Christian, right? Some were staunch deists. But even the deists thought that they had in Scripture a roadmap, a wise tool for constructing a civil government that protect, protected religious liberties and the life, uh, freedom, <laughs> life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So, so that was going on. And then you look at the French Revolution and what was their blueprint? What was the writings of Rousseau? You know, mm -hmm. an utterly godless... A humanistic roadmap. And so when they threw off governing authorities with certain views of, of the uh, injustice of those governmental authorities and what they instituted led to chaos and death and violence, showing that, man, new boss, same as the old boss, in the words of Orwell. So, so you have to wonder, the Americans, when they threw off the governing authorities, they did it with a great weightiness and trepidation and awareness that they could actually make it worse, <laughs> not necessarily better. And there was a humility, and that I think probably was informed by Scripture, and awareness that if, if we overthrow this authority, we don't do it lightly, and we could actually make it worse, so we better tread lightly. Okay, so I'm going to throw uh, another case study into the mix here. So here's the case study. We have someone that God has very clearly said, you will be the next ruler, you're going to be the next president of the United States. Uh, I, I, have, I have shown you, I, you know, God appears and God says you will be the next president of the United States. All that you have to do is uh, basically overthrow the president, the existing president. Um, do you, so I'm leaning, I'm not clever enough to keep this illustration going. I'm going towards uh, David and Saul. So here God 
himself through a prophet says, David, you are the next king. I'm done with Saul. He's over. Uh, You are the king. But then David has such trepidation, I would say Romans 13 type trepidation, that he refuses, even though he has every right to, he refuses to do that. Now, uh, now, granted, uh, God's not asking David to do something against his, you know, he's not saying you must kill Saul and murder him in cold, cold blood. God never says that. But would you say, though, that the David Saul should give us incredible pause if we're looking to overthrow a country? Because, you know, I think about that every day of overthrowing a country. And the reason for silence is there are blank stares on our faces as we're trying to ponder this. Well, here's the question. Yeah, it's tough. First of all, you have a a theocracy, right? So there's no modern government parallel to the theocracy of ancient Israel. So that's difficult. Maybe Saudi Arabia, perhaps. No modern (laughs) Christian. Um, Now, here's the thing, though. What I think people are wondering is where's the line? Mm. You know, that's what we've talked about is that there seem to be some line to cross. And and I think you were saying, uh, using very valid scriptural uh, parts of scripture, that the line is when someone in authority asks you to do something that God would say, I find total displeasure in that. Uh, that I, I hate that you're doing that. And so is that the line? See, that's tough. Well, you're right, because we know what to do if we're put in a position like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because it's yeah. an explicitly religious issue centered around worship and biblical commands. What about when someone tells you to grab a case of tea and throw it in the Boston Harbor? You know, yeah, yeah. H- How do you well, know whether or not to do it? Let, let's just bring this in, because I know our listeners are probably asking, when are you going to bring up the abortion issue? Yeah. Because that's the, that's the major question that has been raised in our lifetime and those who were involved back when Operation Rescue was uh, was mm-hmm. still um, all the rage, and people would and you know go to abortion clinics, they would uh, chain themselves together, they would not do it violently, they would not resist arrest, they were willing to endure the penalties that were imposed, and their argument was, we have a government that has sanctioned the slaughter of innocent babies. And as Christians, we are required by God to protect them as best we are able. And so they would say, Romans 13, we're happy to abide by it until the, the governing authorities uh, sanction something and even use our tax dollars to subsidize such an abomination that is clearly contrary to the word of God. And so they would, have, would, would look to themselves as an exception to this. Um, I personally think that those who engaged in that kind of uh, protest were justified in doing so. I don't think they were in violation of Romans 13. Uh, Now, the Christian church has developed some guidelines. These aren't original with us, as I mentioned a few of them, that would justify acts of civil disobedience. Now, we're not talking about throwing off the, uh, the yoke of tyranny of a foreign power like, you know, was the were the colonies mm-hmm. justified in the American Revolution. No talk, taxation without representation. Yeah, not talking right. about that yeah. right now. First of all, it, it, the, the issue at hand has to be something that is explicitly contrary to Scripture. It can't be, well, I don't like that law. Or, um, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, for example, you can't, I don't think you have the, the, the warrant to say, well, I don't like Obamacare. And I don't like the Affordable Care Act, so I'm going to engage in some sort of civil rebellion. I'm going to uh, uh, lay siege to, um, you know, some governmental office as a protest to that. 
or um, I'm going to cheat on my taxes to take my money back because they're going to use it immorally. Exactly, like exactly. Is this a personal story? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so it can't be just a personal preference or a kind of a, an opinion on some political issue. It has to be something explicit in God's Word that we are being commanded uh, by law to do that we know is contrary to God's Word. Secondly, before we engage in civil disobedience, we must have exhausted all possible legal channels. That's in other good. words, we need, to, we need to be sure that we have done everything we can through proper legal channels in order to reverse the position that the government has taken. We Thirdly, we have to uh, engage in it nonviolently. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I don't believe that shooting abortion doctors is a legitimate expression of civil disobedience. Let me be very clear about that. Yeah. And then fourth, you have to be willing to suffer the consequences of your action. You That's have to right. be willing to endure the penalty and that the people involved in Operation or um, Operation Rescue were willing to go and sit in a jail until they were bailed out and were willing to have their records impugned, as it were, because of their decision. So if all those things are in place and we're convinced that this is something that is contrary to God's will that the government has ordered, I think there are instances in which civil disobedience is justified. That's good. That's good. And I, th- I I like that you bring in that last point, too, because I think many of us would greatly applaud Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But then he was hung in prison and he got what he deserved. And I think that's the tension in some ways is we applaud him for his love for Jesus. But then we realize he got what he deserved. And so I think this is why Romans 13 requires incredible prayer for us to know how now shall we live with the reality of Romans 13. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.